I'm here with Justin Randall, who also happens to be one of my workmates. I've been working with you for, it's over a year now, isn't it, at VUX World? Yeah? Yeah, definitely. It feels like forever. <laughs> feels like forever, and yet we're still getting to know each other. We had a good time together in London. That was the first time we met face-to-face, so it's been a lot of this video calls that feels totally normal for us. But yeah, it's it's been like it, a lot has happened in that year. Probably a lot of it that we're not actually allowed to talk about because it's client-based. But a lot has happened, and it's been good. And it's been good. Um, it's all fun stuff. Yeah, exactly. It's all fun stuff. So obviously, I know who you are. But I would love it, Justin, if you could introduce yourself for the listeners so they can get a better idea of who you are, where you've come from, and, and what you've been up to. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, as Ben said, my name is Justin Randall. I'm the uh, Chief Technology Officer for VUX World. Uh, so what that means for VUX World, I'm responsible for the technology side, particularly in the service delivery uh, part of our business. So that's working with businesses on everything from strategy, ideation, prototype, uh, delivery, and managed services for bots. Right. So we'll do everything for from teaching you how to build, to build it with you, or build it for you, and take care of it for you. And so the Brief background behind that, I spent 20 years in telecom, essentially building consumer-grade basic services like television, internet, uh, telephony, and all that stuff. And after uh, another story, which I've gone over in, in many other uh, instances, and maybe we can touch upon it, uh, but after a, a very wildly successful uh, project with Conversational AI, sort of the light bulb went on, and I realized, like, oh, there's there's something real here. There's something very transformational. And that you know, galvanized me into a complete career path switch to focus on customer experience and Conversational AI. And, uh, here I am. Awesome. Lovely to have you here. It's, uh, yeah, it's great to, like, it, it feels really nice, you know, often you're working with people and of course we have our chats, but it's really nice to just sit and get your thoughts on so many things because often you'll bring stuff up in meetings and I'm like, oh, okay, that's that's interesting. And now I can really just grill you. It's a really nice way of saying that I talk and ramble a lot, so thank you. <laughs> <laughs> no worries. No worries. I mean, obviously, talking is the name of our game, so this is a good thing. Um, but you know, like, yeah, you, you've got a lot of experience that is uh, extremely like relevant and useful. But also, you're coming from more of a tech side where you understand things in a completely different way from how I understand them. And obviously, tech and design in conversational AI, there has to be a kind of synergy. You know, we're working together all the time. So it's yeah. it's really nice to get your thoughts on stuff. And now I want to get your thoughts on things in a rapid fire fashion. Oh my. Are you ready? Yeah, ready. No, I, yeah, it's called 30 seconds go, but of course, just take as long as you want. But Justin, and I, I don't think I've ever actually asked you this. What's your favorite bot? I mean, that's obviously that's 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 a tough one for me because because I've been involved in, in more than one. And certainly the last thing I'd want to do is, is put down a customer's bot that we built and say, that's not my favorite one. But this one, thankfully, is really easy for me because the first bot that I built um, carries meaning for me uh, and was also named after uh, my daughter, uh, which was Penny. And I know I've, I've probably talked about Penny more than any other bot and, and maybe people are tired of, of hearing about it, but really... It, it was the first bot that I put together. It came out of a compelling event where I know I've, I've shared the story before, but I lost we lost an entire contact center of several hundred agents due to a positive screening of COVID. And we had to scramble real hard to put together some type of solution to triage the contacts that were coming in on the voice channel and, and the small local outbound team that we kind of formed to kind of reach back out and help people. 
uh, how, how can we prioritize all of that, right? And so, yeah. you know, uh, there was a whole journey. There was a life experience behind that. There was the dire straits of, you know, our retail base actually finding me on LinkedIn going, hey, there's a problem with my modem. Like, that's how, how bad our customer service has gotten as a result of losing hundreds of agents, right? Um, to, you know, to putting up that prototype and my CEO actually going, okay, let's do this. To, to the rough launch, to the, you know, two years of tuning and realizing tremendous business value. Um, it was it was transformational for me as a person, right, in, in my career. And again, it, it was ultimately what led me to to switch focuses and say, hey, telecom, you know, we've had a, we've had a great run, and I love obviously the company I work for. I love my teammates. I love the the technology, but I saw that I had a real chance of doing something different and helping people because it was a journey. It was really difficult uh, to get out the door. It was difficult once it was out the door to kind of optimize. And there's there's no books. There's no there's no best practices really for doing the whole end to end take this live keep this live and make sure it's constantly doing well uh, of course when you talk to practitioners there's a lot of stuff but like there's nothing uh, it, it was a journey that once i reached the point of and i would still say penny's an unfinished work of art but once i reached a point where where i would say wow like what a thing uh it it left its mark on me and so it's a very easy question to answer and say okay it it, it was penny and maybe one day that'll be different but uh but today it's uh it's 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 the easy answer to that question. Yeah, lovely. I mean, uh, it's it's really delightful that you named the bot after your daughter, after your kid. So like, <laughs> I think instantly you're going to have an attachment to it. It was um, a choice actually originally. So the, the the secret it started as another one of my kids' names, and then when we actually did like focus groups and testing and stuff like that, we're like, mm, I'm not going to say because I have three kids. So thankfully, so the, they're not going to know which one had the less preferred name. <laughs> but we settled on Penny. Yeah, sure. Sure, sure. Yeah, I I think, yeah. Uh, Maybe don't show your kids this interview. Yeah. (laughs) But I mean, that's the thing, isn't it? Like, of course, uh, you have this personal attachment to the thing you're creating, but then as soon as you're done, it goes out into the world. And then, yeah, when you're picking names, you have to put that to the group. So if your kids' names are in there, you might get uh, feedback that you're like, oh, uh, that hurts. But yeah. Happen. It definitely happened. When someone would leave a bad a bad survey or something with the bot and say, oh, that penny did this and this and this, you're like, hey, that's my kid. Like, don't, 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 don't kid. But, you know, talk, talk about, you know, uh, an interesting, you know, segue. Sorry, and again, you, you know me, I like rambling on. So one of the most interesting things about that project as someone with a very strong technology background focus was dealing with direct customer feedback on your project that does kind of feel like your child in a way. So usually, you know, if I was building, you know, an internet service or I was building something like that, yeah, there's customers who are going to say, oh, yeah, they had crappy internet, like they had buffering. But really, you don't take it too personally because you're like, yeah, well, maybe there was some attenuation on a line somewhere. There was a regional problem. Like, you know, it's not necessarily what you've done specifically. If you've done something stupid and caused an outage, sure, you accept responsibility. But again, you know what's wrong. There's no real personal attacks. But with this, this is an interesting project because it's something that you build as technology focused, but it does embody some kind of personality. You do have a little bit more of an attachment to it because of what you've sort of put into it. And the feedback, what you're dealing with now is the customer service layer, right? And so, you know, they say like weddings and car crashes, like people will normally like leave feedback that it was absolutely amazing. And even then, maybe not, right? Or the car crash. This was absolutely atrocious, right? And so people are emotional. People are upset. And people sometimes often do take it out on whether it was a human agent or a bot. And so I never took that much, I would say, personally directed feedback against a technology project as it was 
a bot and people would take the time to, to insult the bot or say things about the bot and treat the bot like a person who was performing their job poorly. And it's it definitely as a, as a, as an engineer, I wasn't used to projects being criticized in that capacity. So that was a, definitely an, an interesting piece about, uh, about that. Yeah, sure. I think the attachment part is something that we're only starting to discover and deal with. And it, it's, um, yeah, like it, it can be hard, especially if, if the bot gets bad feedback because you feel personally responsible in some way, much like a parent. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Hi. Okay, so this should be 30 seconds. We're over, but it's all good. It's all good. It's always over. I don't, I think I've had one person who gave a really, I think it was John, sorry, dropped something. Uh, I think it was Dr. Joan Palmiter who gave like a one word answer that really worked. And yeah, it's always over. So it's good. It's good. Number two, what Canadian lingo, sorry, to give context, you're based in Ontario. So I guess people should That's know right. why you would be speaking to the Canadian part. And maybe this will be a multilingual answer, I wonder. What Canadian lingo should bots know? <laughs> I feel like at this point I'd just be throwing out stereotypes. But, um, I mean, recognizing A as a question. <laughs> I would say EH. Uh, but I feel like, you know, again, it's a very stereotypical answer. I mean... It's it's hard for me, I guess, to separate what makes you know lingo Canadian when as as a Canadian. I mean, we all just kind of talk to each other. Yeah. yeah. Uh, when I, I suppose you know when I go to different places, I notice what other people you know do differently. Like when I'm in the UK, hearing people say "I've not got one" instead of "I don't have one," right? So small things like that. So obviously, recognizing uh, if if it's more of a general context of you know regionalization and localization, obviously you want to recognize small differences like that. But really, if, if I'm going to play the stereotypical answer, it's recognizing that A is a question and, you know, you should definitely recognize poutine as an entity and, and attribute some kind of, try and empathize with someone if they're saying that they need this sort of thing uh, when they're talking to your body. Yeah, I get you. I get you. And poutine, that's the the, the dish, right? Oh, that's right. You mean, how could you do this to me? It's like knife through the heart that you don't even remember what it is. Yeah, it's, it's a very unhealthy dish. I believe it originated from Quebec. Uh, of fries and gravy and cheese curds, yeah. Uh, no, but you I, can get, uh, that, that's you know that's that's considered the basic staple version now. You go to Quebec, there's all these fancy specialty places where you can get who knows what on it, and uh, yeah, yeah, cool. It's been turned into a gourmet thing of yeah, all sorts of varieties and stuff. Yeah, and then every Canadian watching this is now like you know virtually slapping me in the face for just playing right into the stereotypes, but that's all. It's okay. Well, I think that's it. You know, like stereotypes because they're true right these are common things in the culture that yeah become stereotypes because you're so used to hearing yeah them. in that case i would say you know your bot should be overly polite and accommodating okay that's cool <laughs> i think most bots should be right anyways yeah exactly exactly <laughs> okay cool okay great this is yeah i now know that if we do a canadian bot we're on our way yeah okay um and finally, I know that you were wondering about this question as we were talking earlier today in other meetings. I would love to get your response to this. Could you please, and I know this is hard, I think pretty much anyone would struggle with this, but can you give me three words that describe your career so far and possibly a bit of context about why? Sure. Um, I mean, I think, I think I may have jokingly said something that fits uh, at the start of this meeting in a sense, but uh, 
you know, never stops talking, I think would be a good, a good description uh, for me that probably anyone who's worked with me has heard me, you know, say the same things three times in different ways, you know, in a single conversation. Uh, but no, but, but, but I joke, I would say if, I, if really I was going to pick something to kind of summarize, uh, I guess the journey that I've been on, it was, it would be, uh, I'm going to go, I'm going to steal something from the ABCs, right? But uh, always be curious, uh-huh. right? If I look at, you know, every, Every step in my career, uh, you know, I've, I've kind of changed what I've done or what I've focused on or what I've been interested in, you know, every every few years. And a lot of that has come with, you know, just a need to understand a little bit more about whether it's the technology, whether it's the business, whether it's the other departments in the business. But, you know, I, I was someone who actually started uh, in the contact center uh, as an agent. So I began my career actually you know, answering phones as a tech support agent, helping people with, you know, dial-up support. Yeah, that's, that's, I'm going to date myself at all, right? So helping people with modem issues and, you know, getting emails working and stuff like that. But I always, I always had a deeper need to understand what was going on behind the scenes. And back then, you know, contact center agents also had a lot more access, at least in the companies that worked, I had more access to the back end as well. And so I quickly started automating and how do I, how do I do this? How do I make this easier? You know, and, and I suppose I took that curiosity of how does this work and how do I make it easier pretty much across every single thing that I do uh, in my career, including in conversational AI. I mean, when I, when I first approached that project, I had no idea what I was doing. Like I had never built a conversational AI agent before. There was a lot of lack of books of how to do this beyond things like Alexa skills or Google skills, which is more of like a command control type type voice interface than, than let's say a two-way multi-turn conversation. And so, you know, it was how, how, how does this work? How should this work? And how do I make it easier? Right. And a lot, a lot of those philosophies led to, you know, the creation of my own analytics engine, which obviously led to success, a lot of operational orchestration and automation that led to me being able to make changes really fast and with confidence Like I could make changes going live in a day. I think I remember when I was on Kane's podcast, um, the VWX World podcast a few years ago, and I think I remember uh, Dustin had asked me a question about changes or something like that. When I looked at it in, in like one month, we had pushed over, you know, 150 releases or something like that. Many of these just during the day. Um, and yeah. a lot of it is, again, putting putting the tools and systems in place to make things, to understand how things work and how to make it better and make it easier, right? And so yeah. always being curious and always seeking. And that, that helps also with what we do, uh, you know, when building. You know, because we're we're learning new domains all the time, right? So my, my background is in telecom. You know, we've we've done a bot now for for debt collection. We're doing bots for, for waste management. Do you know what I mean? And, and so and travel and things like that. So like we don't know anything about these domains. Right? We understand the technology, but it takes that curiosity also to probe and to learn how 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 should this work, right? Uh, because at the end of the day, we are we are digging our hands deep into process. The bot doesn't live in a vacuum. The bot's part of a bigger uh, bigger surface area of how businesses interact with their customers. And so even in doing that, as you know, from, from working together, sometimes we can make tremendous improvements for customers that have absolutely nothing to do with the bot, but came to light just because we're probing and asking these questions. We're trying to understand things and trying to ultimately make things better for people. Yeah, cool. And you have so, so nicely segued into the main conversation, which is about a connected bot being a good bot. Sorry, I'm trying to change buttons as I talk and that wasn't as smooth as I hoped for. No, it's right. So, <clears throat> yeah, you know, like an awareness of what's happening in the organization that comes to light from working on the bot and, you know, being aware of what's going on and learning as as you say, you know, you need to be curious because there's things 
we come into the project that we know already and there's things that are huge question marks and we have to then just go and try and discover how that's working. And really, you know, yeah, it's about connections, right? It's about like connecting what you're doing with what you either know already or what you don't know. And I guess there's all sorts of different ways we could look at this. But luckily, I've got questions prepared for you because <laughs> I could just go in all sorts of random uh, tangents. But I think, you know, this is the thing that, like, you know, I uh, still find working with users stuff that, uh, for me, it's it's still it's still fairly new to me. Like, you know, I understand, for example, API connections. I understand that when a bot has API connections, that allows it to access information that's been made available somewhere else on the web in some format where, you know, it can perhaps access a database with customer information or something. Um, and these are things that I, I understand and I know that as we're developing a bot, it's like, okay, uh, you know, I understand that we're going to have to access these things, but I'm, I still feel like I'm seeing it in quite simple terms and maybe that's what I need. So could you please... Uh, like describe to me a bot's connections in layman terms, because I guess there's more than just APIs to it. You know, what what are we actually looking at? Yeah, I mean, if I was going to break it into, I guess, two contexts, I would say one of them would be APIs. So that's how does the bot access information, right? Uh, and then the other one would be uh, the channel layer of connections. So how does the bot connect? To the outside world, right? So, you know, I'll, I'll start with the uh, the latter first. So, obviously, a bot doesn't live in a vacuum. It needs to actually be able to interact with people. So, some of the core connections that a bot needs is connections to those channels. So, whether that is, you know, the SMS channel, whether that's WhatsApp, whether that's voice, whether that's you know even email, right? And so, <clears throat> thinking upfront, you know, very early about you know how your bot is going to connect it connect to things? How are you going to manage those connections? How are you going to try and have seamless conversations across those connections is definitely something to consider. And by even doing that, you are going to need to form other connections, leveraging the API side of things, right? So again, I mean, if, if you if you think of, you know, the bot, uh, let's say starting a conversation over SMS, and then we, we think of the idea of having a, an omni-channel conversation across now that they've, they've gone on, on VoIP uh, or voice, sorry, um, how, how do those link together? How, how is the state shared with that conversation? And so that would need to obviously exist somewhere, right? And so that's going to be maybe a cache or a database or some data store. And how is the bot ultimately going to access that to fetch information about known conversations, about known identities across different channels? Um, that's where APIs are going to come into play. And like API, it is, it is a very overloaded term. Um, really, when we talk about API, uh, especially as a developer, um, it may not even be something that's over the network. I mean, if I borrow a piece of software for someone else, like a module, even that module has a way that I'm supposed to talk to it, that's its API, right? But when we talk about API at a general level, we're saying here's some kind of interface or some kind of uh, some contract that I'm, I'm willing to commit to, to people who are going to talk to this thing, whether it's a module that you're putting in a piece of software or something that sits on a network somewhere that you're going to speak to. This is the, these are the functions that I'm able to uh, carry out. And these are, let's say, the inputs that I'm going to need for you from you. And here are the outputs that you're going to get. Um, 
the benefits, of course, of, uh, you know, different types of APIs are things like, you know, some APIs are, are fairly descriptive in the sense where uh, you can take, let's say, a programming language and say, hey, there's an API at this network site. Um, can you go create me some code that I can work with that talks to this API? And so a lot of the more modern APIs will have that kind of flexibility with them. And some of the older ones, you know, or, or uh, even ones that are just aren't leveraging those types of open standards, uh, you may have to do a lot more sort of hand coding to, to kind of build things yourself. But, you know, you may sometimes hear things like, you know, the reason I even go in this detail, you, you may sometimes hear people say, oh, you know, we don't have an API for that or, or things like that. What they're essentially saying usually in those terms is they don't have something that is residing on the network that other applications can easily talk to over the network. Because almost everything has an API. If I write a piece of code and it's private and only I can talk to it, but I can talk to it, I, it probably still has an API that I can use to talk with. And, and really at the end of the day, even if there's no network-based API, uh, usually people are talking about like HTTP or web-based APIs. There might be a database behind it, which technically when you connect to a database and you're pulling it, there's a SQL API or there's a database API for that. There might even be files that live on some server in some specific format. So there's no API, but it's got a parsable interface. It's got a specific format and you can easily, you could say that its API is that format and the file system, right? Uh, and okay. there's always a way, like, again, I'm, I'm the automate everything person, right? Like no matter what, when someone tells me there's no API, my answer is like, ha yes, there is. We just have to either make it or figure out like what the format is that we're going to extract that data and essentially make it useful or make it accessible. Yeah, I get you. I get you. And so it's essentially connecting the bot to sources of information that it will need to carry out the conversation, right? In real yeah. time, at, at any time. Um, so APIs can perhaps be uh, some function better than others. Some can be slow and perhaps not suited to a conversation. Um, Absolutely. And that can be quite a downfall, right? If because of course we expect a conversation to carry out in in uh, real time and delays. You know, you can prepare someone for a delay, like okay, give me a few seconds to go and check that. But of course, with AI, we uh, with automated conversations, we really want them to be quite rapid and not have people waiting. Yeah. So um, I guess this is one area where I imagine that APIs like. Uh, they can stall a conversation if you have a not like a dodgy API. For sure. Yeah. And, you know, but there's always a way. There's always a workaround. Like lack of an API. Well, I mean, look, if you can't get access to the data, if you have, a, if you have let's say, data that's absolutely highly confidential or it's, you know, behind closed doors mm -hmm. and your cybersecurity team is like, no, you're never getting access to this data. See you later. That's, that's pretty prohibitive. Right. But if, if it's a case of speed, if it's a case of poor API design, there's always a way, right? And it may not even be poor API design. It may just be that, you know, the system does a lot of things and it's just slow. So therefore you don't necessarily want to put it in a real-time conversation. But there's the there's tricks to that, right? I mean, like data, so for example, you know, you may have a, a customer with a homegrown uh, customer relationship management system. So the, the, the system that has everything about the products they bought from you, how much they're paying, all that sort of stuff, right? You know, they may have built it themselves they may not have the sort of scale of companies, obviously, like Salesforce and uh, and uh, and Dynamics and Zendesk and all those have. And so, you know, hitting it hitting it with an API call, like who knows? Maybe it'll take twenty seconds to look up a record. Maybe it'll take thirty seconds. It should be fast, but you're not also going to do that on a phone call. Um, 
really at that point, it's it's less of a question of like, well, how do we make that API faster? You know, because that might be prohibitive. It might be doing certain things that are absolutely required. And yeah, if, if it takes 20 seconds, probably a lot you can do to make it faster, to be honest. But, you know, do you really want to have to deal with, oh, we need this bot. Hey, by the way, you know, CRM devs, now you have to like redo and re-architect all of this stuff for how this works or where our project is stalled. You never want to be in that position, right? And so the way that I've always handled this is, is essentially data duplication, right? I mean, you don't, the data doesn't have to all live in one place, right? And so the idea is to take the data and put it somewhere that's going to be fast. Right. So and, and in some cases that enable it unlocks you like right now we're talking about a slow API, but I'll give you a story that, that I did with Penny, which is actually like this really shows the power here. And it also uh, taps into these like better than human experiences, which you could yeah. not deliver if you try to do the person. So if you think like with telecom, obviously, there's many different systems that make up uh, delivering an Internet service or delivering a telephone service or delivering a television service. And so someone might uh, there might be hundreds of different reasons why someone uh, might call in for a problem, let's say, with with Internet, right? And if someone calls in with Internet, <clears throat> based on whatever maybe, I may want to talk to a few dozen different systems, right? Our traffic management system to see if you're dropping a lot of connections, like sort of the, the quality traffic management traffic engineering systems. And we want to check our CMTS and see, like, you know, are, are you, is, is your modem rebooting? Like, are you having frequent, like, weird connection issues? Um, I may want to check the signal on the line. You know, is there a lot of signal to noise ratio? Is there attenuation? Is there these problems that I can see in advance? There's no way you're going to do that on the phone, right? I mean, in in some cases, some of these jobs, you know, would take a few minutes to, to kind of get to. But, you know, and, and obviously what we wanted to do when, when people called, well, first thing, we wanted to be proactive and prevent people from calling. But when people called, we did a really good job of trying to guess why people were calling. And we did that by essentially... Every day, there was a batch process job that would go over all of these systems, right? So all dozens of them. And it, it would take a full day, let's say, to get through all of our subscribers and come up with this, with this analysis. But what would happen is it would hit all of these slow APIs. It would scrape all of this information. And then it would do something even better. It would actually understand what all of that meant, right? It would take this data and synthesize and it would come up and say, ah, Okay, or they had really bad SNR, signal to noise ratio, and really bad attenuation. They are having a bad internet experience. We don't have to wonder about that. Like, we're not guessing, right? Like, that's bad, right? And so all of that data would get compacted, it would get put into this really fast database that was really accessible. And so Penny would come in and hit that, and within hundred less than 100 milliseconds, have a full understanding of what was wrong with their services, yeah. right? So, so like immediately there was no time wasted and then we would create tickets. And then as everything was, was transitioned to agents as well, like if it needed to be, like they didn't even need to wonder what was going on. Penny would synthesize all of us and say, well, here's what's wrong with the customer's connection. Here's what you need to do next. Right. And I know, uh, I, uh, like, I don't think I was, I, th I think they may have done this just after I left, but then obviously they took all of that and then plugged it right into that. Okay. Well now auto generate tickets automatically yeah. actively let them know that this happened and even prevent the call in in the first place. Yeah, right. there was a lot yeah. of effort. Actually, no, absolutely, that was important. But yeah, there was a lot of effort put on on, on proactivity and, and contact prevention as well, which was another side benefit of this stuff. But the, but the goal is, I mean, you can take the data, make it more quickly available, but in the same time, by by undergoing that process, if you feel guilty about just duplicating data, add some intelligence to it, synthesize the information, make some conclusions, make it useful, turn it into being proactive if you want, as in the case with, with Penny. 
or at the very least dump it in this fast table that when they contact you, you're like, hey, are you, I noticed you're having trouble with your internet connection. Is this why you're calling? Yeah, okay, perfect. Grab the information, create cases, synthesize, move forward. Yeah, that's fantastic. Because I mean, you know, you knew that that information was useful. It's just you had to prepare it in a format that you could actually plug into the conversations. Right. Yeah. Yeah, fantastic. Cool, cool. I'm getting something here. I'm getting something. And so, you know, we're talking about uh, we're talking about data in conversational AI and, you know, awareness of, because of course, even the term data is so loaded, but it's like having, uh, collecting the relevant information based on whatever you're you're doing whatever you're focused on having the data about perhaps customers and then if it's an internet provider like speed of connections and and all sorts of things so i know that this is a very general question and i have to apologize for that it's just i feel like you know we have to make it fairly general because of course everyone in the audience is probably working in a different sector or a different type of bot is there an ideal scenario uh for teams when using data in conversational AI? How, how should they treat data in an ideal way so that it's basically uh, suitable for conversational AI? So yeah. general. No, no, that's okay. But yeah, so it's, I know my, 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 my diverging is happening right now and I'm just slowly converging so I can answer the question in my, in my head right now. But, but I mean, obviously there's, there's a few different contexts to data. Because we've got uh, the data that the bot is going to use in the context of a conversation. So we're talking about, you know, a mixture of, I would say, like hot, warm and cold data, right? So the hot data, I would be talking about things like, this is your balance right now. Do you know what I mean? Uh, We talk about synthesizing data and stuff like that. Like one of the things to keep in mind, of course, especially in the customer service, especially if you're talking about money, right, is understand the, the latency there. If, you, if your CRM, let's say, is not going to be very fast, and you're going to be talking about financials, uh, coming up with some way of, of making sure that you have kind of cash consistency with what's actually going on. So if someone updates the system, it'll even go and update your cash. But sorry, I'm, I'm going off on a tangent here. So, so there's the that's data, that, there, there's, there's the bot, there's the data that the bot is going to work with, which again, there's going to be a few different type of tiers of data and how it might need to access it. But then there's also the data that goes into uh, training the bot and also optimizing the bot, right? So I'm gonna I'm gonna start with there because that's usually you know as you approach a project you know where you would begin is is sort of okay well what what's being said what are what are we discussing right and so you know ideally of course you would have access to things like transcripts you'd have a centralized system. Uh, that already takes care of things like redacting PII and payment info. So think of like, you know, your traditional workforce optimization system that you'd find in a contact center, right? Mm-hmm. Um, where you'd have access to audio recordings, even better, the transcriptions of those audio recordings, hopefully they're good quality. Otherwise, you know, you may get a good laugh of, of some, some of the things that were said. Um, and, and, you know, making sure that you have tools to essentially like extract, um, extract topics, extract, you know, essentially what are people actually talking about? And of course, you know, you and I both know there's some great commercial tools out there. Uh, there's also some really good open source tools that, you know, require a lot, a lot more elbow grease, but, you know, you can, uh, you can still do some pretty great things with them. So, you know, being able to take data like that and being able to cluster and figure out like, oh, these things are related, these things are being discussed, um, you know, is very important like early on in the design phase, right? 
but also, you know, later on as you get into optimization, optimizing uh, the bot as well, because those same techniques for identifying the drivers you're going to talk about at first are also going to be used to identifying the emerging drivers that come up once the bot is live, right? Because, you know, as we think about a bot, you know, businesses are always changing, you know, for the most part, unless you work in extremely highly regulated industries that do like one thing and there's a very, very infrequent change. I haven't, I haven't run into that yet. Uh, but there's always new products, new promotions, new bundles, you know, compelling events can happen out of nowhere, like some, you know, maybe it was a marketing event, maybe it was, you know, a social media influencer went online and trashed your brand and did something like that. But there's all these things that can happen constantly that'll create new things that, you know, you probably didn't think about at the time that you built the bot. So how are you going to keep a pulse on that, right, and make sure that, and you're always aware of these things. And so, so for us, of course, that means like funneling all of the fallbacks, like all of the unknown unknowns, essentially, that, that our bot runs into uh, for further analysis so we can actually do that stuff. And then when we talk about data from an accessibility, like the data that the bot is going to use, we're talking about ideal situations, it kind of taps into a little bit of what I was saying before, like ideally the data that you, the data that would be hot data, the data that you need to be fast, accessible, you don't want it to be wrong, Ideally, you would have direct access to it. You wouldn't necessarily have a cache, but sometimes, obviously, like making things that are you know reasonably close to being consistent is okay. Um, but you just obviously have to make sure that you communicate that as a bot, like you know, uh, or or find a way to to do ad hoc. What's the word I'm looking for? Like lazy consistency uh, upon requests for like specific customers versus the whole base on on certain fashions, um, and. I guess the other thing would be the data generated by the bot, right? From the perspective of analytics. So taking the details of the conversation annotated with additional information that only the bot knows about, like what are the goals that we're currently trying to accomplish while these things are occurring? Uh, what is the current step or sequence, like sequence or step that I'm in, you know, as I'm, as I'm going through this logic uh, and ultimately what state uh, is the customer in at the point where they are, you know, interacting with me? And I say state there. I guess it's a little bit of an overloaded term because uh, what I was thinking when I said it was customer journey. So, you know, looking up information or identity about the the, the customer and pairing that with the reasons why they're reaching out to try and understand, like, okay, well, you know, why is it? Or to be able to even notice and and start to mitigate why is it that you know I'm getting you know this spike of calls from people who are less than uh, customers who are less than 30 days old, but trying to trying to figure out those breadcrumbs of of the state of the customer, pairing it with the drivers, and ultimately shipping that off to analytics. So, but talking about ideal state, I mean, you've got you've got data on the conversations in advance in a WFO system. You've got data that the bot needs to access to in order to perform its function, and then data that the bot generates. Uh, in terms of insights or or analytics about what's going on with the customer, what's going on with the bot itself. Cool. It, there's so many. Said, but but, but I, I I talk a lot. That's uh, that's my <laughs> I hang my head on that. <laughs> yeah, it's great. Like so much great stuff, and I think I could really, you know, I feel like I could ask more about the data generated by the bot because, of course, someone has to define what it's going to collect to have that generated in the end, in the actual conversations. Sorry, I'm just going to close the door because I can hear the kids playing. I'll be one second. Sorry, sorry. The cat's still in the room, but he's not going to make much noise. Um, coffee with our viewers. Ah, cool. Everybody loves that. I think it's good to get those little moments of peace because basically they 
they saw at that moment that they could just relax. They didn't have to do anything. It's actually in these little moments, funny you say that, because even in a conference, these little moments of reflection should be like interspersed throughout the day to just allow people to think about what they've just heard and like maybe think it through. So I might not cut that out. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Oh, cool. Cool. Um, I might have a sip of coffee myself while I rephrase the question. But no, like, yeah, exactly. The bot is generating data, but it's not like, you know, after a conversation, you can think, oh, we want to know this about the conversation. Surely the bot was collecting it. Let's go and find that. You can't do it that way. Right from the start, someone, as in you, (laughs) has to define what data points the bot is going to collect. Um, And it's surely a case-by-case basis, right? Depending on what the business is, what the use case of the bot is, uh, maybe target customers, specific things about them that you would want to collect so long as that's acceptable to collect. Um, Is there anything that's standard across all conversations? Never yeah. easy question. No, no, no. It's it's a, it's it, well. I mean, you know me. I think in my feelings on analytics and a lot of that stuff, right? So, uh, yeah, yeah. But but I'll, I'll I'll expand obviously for for everyone else. So, uh, I would say there is an obvious lack of of standardization across the industry of what should be looked at. I mean, uh, there's a lot of analytics tools that'll look very low level. When we talk about bot analytics, obviously, a lot of the things that I see are people going like, "Hey, the NLU, the NLU, the NLU, the NLU." Where, you know, in, in truth, like, you know, oh, great, whether your confidence is 90% or 50%, have you helped the person? Yeah. Like, does that really show whether you've accomplished a goal or not? Like, no, right? And so, you know, for me, uh, as well as Kane, like, we have the the sort of three layers of analytics that we like talking about, sort of in, in narrowing scope as kind of it goes northbound, which is the interaction layer, right? So, that's really the surface area people are using to interact with your business, whether that's your web page, whether that's, you know, your, your touchstone IDR, whether it's your bot, whether it's a human agent who's answered a phone call, right? Like this is sort of what's going on at the interaction layer. And some of those are standardized, right? I mean, if you talk about an agent, like a contact center agent, like if I go back 20 plus years when I was answering the phone, it's actually no different than it is today. Funny enough, right? You answer a call, you get thrown into wrap up mode. You've got these codes. What did this call mean? You know, was it this, you know, reason or that reason or those sort of things? So those those have been standards and, and those funnel into, let's say, standard contact center type reports. So there's there's some pieces of the interaction layer that I would say are well-defined, but then you've got things like the bot layer where it, not so much, right? Or even the conversational. Sure, we can talk about intense. We can talk about confidence. Everyone can wrap their head around that. It's pretty simple. It's pretty basic. Every platform can do that. Um, <clears throat> but what about is the bot accomplishing its goals? Right. Like, are we completing the sequences of the conversation successfully? Are we, you know, if the the bot says a prompt to someone, you know, how effective is that prompt at getting the right responses? Right. There's no real standard metric for that. So, I mean, obviously, I mean, you know that. So we've we've come up with a bunch of stuff in-house, you know, for us to to kind of uh, tag a lot of this stuff, which is really just adding a lot of context data and doing a lot of data management and variable management on top of the bots to kind of maintain sort of what is the goal of the conversation? Like, what are we what are we currently trying to accomplish? What's the active or sequence or subsequence that we're executing to accomplish that goal? And what is the active step within that sequence 
uh, that we're currently taking. And it might be a prompt and waiting for a response, or it might be making an API call. It might be, you know what I mean? But what is what is the lowest level unit of we're doing a thing that could either succeed or fail and then ultimately affect the sequence, which ultimately affects the goal. And so for us at the interaction layer, that's been very useful at finding out things like not only did people abandon, but where did they abandon? Right. Or, for example, uh, you know, even if you take a look at uh, or like escalations, it's, an, it's one thing to say, oh, the conversation was escalated. It's another thing to say, here's precisely where it was escalated. I mean, I remember like if you look at our analytics for, you know, for our bots, again, you, you spend more time in these Web pages than I do. Um, you know, if we were to take a look at the top number one reason why conversations are escalated to a person, of course, by by far and large, the, I think it's over 50 percent of escalated conversations are people saying, put me through to an agent, right? They're specifically insisting on being put through to an agent, but by pairing it with what's the active goal and where are we now in the conversation, it suddenly doesn't look so bad because it's in response to the direct question of how may I help you? Um, so, which is the first question that of course our bots, you know, typically ask, right? So you know that of this broad base of people who are being escalated, these are the people who ultimately don't want to talk to the bot. And there's still plenty of people out there like that um so you know being able to understand and being able to zone in versus you know some of the other 50 percent, it could be an error condition or it could be that there is a piece of the conversation that's bad <laughs> that, that's very frustrating and it's causing people to lose their patience and say hey let me put me through to a person but unless you can separate all of that and kind of figure out what's going on how are you gonna how are you gonna dig in are you just gonna start doing qualitative analysis on transcripts for all calls that were escalated like have fun right like it's gonna, it's gonna take quite some time to kind of Kind of get those insights, but even even on the on the on the NLU confidence front, like there's a lot more that people could be doing, right? By by pairing in that sequence and turn data, because when we talk about intent confidence, I think most people in in our industry would know what that means. Oh, you know, person said this intent, and we had an 83 percent confidence that that was you know that we correctly identified the right intent. Uh, but how do we know if our if our copywriting if our prompts are confusing, right? And so be, by being able to, again, understand where we are, where we are in a sequence, where we are in a turn, we can also evaluate what is the average confidence of any intent within a specific term. So if we have a turn where we're saying, you know, please provide your postcode and, you know, the color of your favorite hat, right? I'm sure we're going to get some pretty confusing responses to that. Maybe, maybe everyone just gets it and, you know, <laughs> we've designed the intents to capture perfectly. But I'm, but I'm imagining like that would probably leave people a little confused, maybe triggering some what's and huh, why, right? Or like warranty, like all things that are not progressing the actual conversation. So being able yeah. to, you know, identify what are the turns people are spending more times in. So how many turn iterations did we have to get through for people to exit? How many fallbacks per turn? What is the average confidence of any intent being triggered in turn? Suddenly now we're also able to evaluate how well we're doing on the copy front as well, right? And so, you know, uh, the, the other thing when it comes to, uh, you know, standardization of data, and there's nothing standard about this at all, but everyone should be doing this. It's again, coming up with like, learn about it, learn as much about your customer as you can, right? Without obviously being invasive. Uh, but like, you know, obviously most bots that I've worked with, all bots that I've worked with have had the need to identify a customer, right? So doesn't that, you don't have to identify them for every use case, but like, the more the more details you can pull about a customer in some way, shape, or fashion, the better you're going to be able to help them, and the better you're also going to be able to provide ROI uh, details on the bot itself, or even even do that that proactive you know the proactive contact prevention. Because 
if you can figure out the state that people are in, so identify the customer, look up things like, you know, are they a new customer? Are they a long-term customer? Do they have a subscription? Is that subscription, you know, about to expire? Um, was there a recent price change? Is there, like, there's, there's so many things about a customer that might drive them to call. There's so many like fingerprints or breadcrumbs that you can identify. And then when you can take that data and pair it with the response to how may I help you, you've essentially got a customer journey map into like a journey aware map of contact drivers, right? Which then can lead you down the path of optimizing it, right? So how do I shorten it? Do I already know these details about this customer? How do I ask them the least questions possible to get them to the right, you know, outcome or try and prevent it? You know, uh, you know, uh, the example of a, a, a debt collection agency recommendation that we made, we noticed that, you know, over 50% of people were contacting to find out how to set up a payment plan. Right. And so we provide them responses on how to set up a payment plan. And that's awesome. Like job done, sort of. Yes. But like at the same time, do you know how many contacts we could prevent if we, for example, tried to more proactively get that information into customers' hands? Right. So be, be, yeah. make journey, journey informed contact driver analysis and then. At the top of the pyramid, the, the business side, uh, really, I again, no, even less standard, I would say here. Uh, but uh, but there is one analytics, uh, conversational AI analytics vendor that that I would say does this very well. Uh, definitely love that product. Um, but I would focus on automations. And then again, that's what we do because automations, you know, things like looking up an account, things like delaying a payment, things like opening up a case for a bad internet issue. Like these are things that a person would ultimately have to do that have a unit of time associated with them. And in other words, have a dollar amount associated with them. And so when we're, when we're really talking about ROI for conversational AI, it definitely should not, the focus should not be on containment. Um, that, that's for sure. Cause containing doesn't mean that you've actually helped anybody. Uh, the yeah. focus and also an escalated conversation, the bot may have still added value there. Right. Yeah, so totally. Yeah, some people may say, oh, cost per call, $15, right? Then, you know, the bot didn't handle it. It escalated it. So that still cost me $15. And on an average, like they're not wrong. But there's a difference in cost still. Like we say $15, that's based on an average, right? Where we're averaging all calls out. There's obviously still a dollar value difference in a phone call that an agent spent 15 minutes on or spent 45 minutes on, yeah, right? Totally. And if the bot is completing tasks like creating cases, doing DPA checks, like actually doing work that is ultimately going to save time for the agent when they are actually handling the call, that's valuable. And if you're focused on deflection and cost per call and all that kind of stuff, you're going to lose all of that. But if you yeah. focus on the automations, you can actually look at metrics like agent time saved, and you can actually put together the ROI that says, hey, you know what? Um, okay, so we've, we've reduced the volume of contacts going to our agents by 50%. But we're not getting rid of anybody because you've also doubled our subscriber base. And so now we've kind of broken even. So, so the way I like to look at it is really when you're tracking the automations, you get that more fine grain, granular ratio where you can actually say, here is the improvement, either to cost, if you really are looking for headcount, it is what it is. Uh, or you can say, we've now doubled our customer capacity with the same number of people. And that's what those, by tracking automations, you can get the data that actually lends you to those, those metrics and that, and that financial proof. Yeah, totally. It's it's almost it's really just proving the value of the bot, right? Because you can be saving money, which I guess looking at containment is. It's like how much money are we saving, but also how much value is the bot adding? And if yeah. you have these metrics, and I think that could even lead, and I think it does, it leads to thinking, oh, 
here's somewhere else that we could add value when we have all of this data in front of this, all these metrics. So, like, oh, we can see here that, you know, these people are asking for this and the bot could provide it, yep. you know? Yeah, it's, um, it makes perfect sense. It's all about time saving, time saving for everybody. But that's the thing, it's, it's time, it really is time saving for everybody. It's for the agent as well as, as the customer as well. And I think a lot of people, uh, at least when I talk to people, it seems like, you know, people aren't always necessarily thinking about the agent side as well. But like there's, other than just, okay, we're going to reduce capacity, therefore we're going to reduce the number of agents. But it's not always the conversation, how do we make their lives better? How do we make it easier? Uh, for me, like when I look at this, I know you've probably heard me say that a bunch of times, but like, I think, I feel like, you know, uh, we're probably on one of the most noble missions out there, which is, you know, how do we give people, uh, again, customers, agents, more time in their life back, right? It's like the most precious resource. We can never buy more of it, right? So totally. by, keeping that, by keeping that goal in mind and by focusing on that for everybody, like literally everybody wins. The business wins and the customer wins, as opposed to yeah. when you're focused just on deflection, the business wins at the expense of the customer in, in most cases. Or which even is not, as well, yeah. Yeah, not a good path to go down, really, is it? You know, um, if the business is winning, but the customer isn't, then there's a very good chance they're just going to go somewhere else as soon as right. something else. Oh, yeah. like, it's, it's a very interesting story. I'm not, I'm not going to go on a long, a long tirade here about this, but like to show that, like, again, like there's that book I love quoting all the time, The Effortless Experience, about how the battle for customer loyalty is more about reduction of effort than it is about delightful experiences. But you know, beyond that, you could you could absolutely love a product, but when you feel a business is wasting your time, you're out, right? There was a, a really nice monitor that I bought. I think I told you the story, but it was a really nice monitor that I bought. It was maybe a couple of years ago uh, when when I started working from home, and uh, I loved the monitor. It was great. I was so happy with it. And then after a few weeks, there was like a little red pixel kind of in the middle. And I was like, oh, okay, whatever, stuck pixel. You know, it's under warranty, so you know, I'll get it replaced and, and whatnot. And I. It was funny because it began as what I thought was going to be one of the most sophisticated customer experiences in my life. Really, like I, I Googled, like, what do I do with this monitor or where do I call it? It's like, oh, scan the QR code on the back of your of your monitor to get this express code. And I was like, ooh, fancy. So I scanned it, right? I'm thinking this is going to save me time, right? So I scan this code. I give my, my 10-digit express, you know, code number. And then I call, the, I call the, the, the hotline. I'm not going to throw this brand, you know, under the bus. Uh, but uh, I, call, I call, call, the, call the number. And it was, of course, one of those bots that like spends over a minute just introducing itself. And I'm like, yeah, yeah. Mm -mm -mm. Yeah. and it's like, okay, now, now key in your express. If you have a 10 digit express, you know, whatever number, key it in now. I'm like, amazing. Key in my number. All right. Now tell us the reason for your call. For monitors, say monitors. For computers, say computers. I'm like, wait, what? You know, I, I just sort of scanned this thing anyway. So, so I went through the whole thing. Uh, Long story short, it kept taking me to the wrong department. And when the wrong department would transfer me to the right one, it would always drop the call. And so that happened essentially four times. And in the total time of my life, like the, the actual service the contact center provided was really fast. Like when I, when I got to the queue, they were answering in 30 seconds. Like overall, if I was going to look at contact center metrics and IBR metrics and bot metrics, they'd be like, those were awesome phone calls super fast connection to an agent, like all that stuff. But, but anyways, it, it probably at this point, I maybe only spent 15 minutes of my life on this, but it was such an unproductive 15 minutes of calling back and dealing with it again at that fourth call. Even though I love this monitor, I was like, Hey, you know what? This just keeps happening to me. I just can't deal with you guys anymore. Like I, I want to return this. 
I want to return this on something else because just because I don't want to deal with your company anymore. And, you know, any good customer service team, uh, they put me in touch with a manager, a manager who was able to, you know, talk me and obviously empathize with me and be like, we're so sorry. Our phone system is messed up. And yet you're a hundred percent right. You know what I mean? And then they, they talked me into, you know, keeping the monitor and, uh, and all that good stuff. And so I'm, I'm talking to you on it right now. So it, it is still here. Right. Uh, but, but, yeah. but moment, like just, just the loss of my time. And again, we're talking 15 yeah. minutes and they were answering really fast, but just the unproductive loss of time, I was willing to forego this brand altogether, even though I loved their product. And I think that really says something about, you know, how we should be treating our customers. And again, like really, like time is the most precious resource that we have in your life, in our lives, right? Um, you can't buy more. Absolutely. And we can't buy more, right? Do you want to be the business that's robbing that from your customers? Or do you want to be the business that's helping them enjoy more quality life with less frustration and less toil? And that's that's what I like to, to challenge businesses with. Uh, and uh, it's, it's pretty easy moral fiber to pluck the string and say, don't you want to be a good person? Right? Like, <laughs> Well, totally. But you know, like they had a QR code, so they should know that that QR code is on the back of a monitor. They should know the most likely things that people call up about for that monitor. And they could have presented that to you from the start. Opportunity for amazing experience was there. It just completely was not. The the idea, the idea, I bet you anything, the designers had it right. And then the implementers just. (laughs) I know. We don't know. We don't know. Just sort of like, "Eh, all right. (laughs) <laughs> it's agile, right? It's, it's the minimum viable product. It's it's half there. It just doesn't actually work. <laughs> uh, so, so Justin, we're talking a lot about connections and data and, of course, uh, saving customers time and all the stuff which is, you know, the the kind of vision for what we're doing. But something that has come up a lot for me in recent conversations with conversation designers is the collaborative side, mm-hmm. you know? And it, this is also, it's, it's resonant because of course we're working together every day. So I feel like it would just be great to know what you want, like what, what you hope for from me. But um, like, you know, what, what do you feel? Cause of course you've worked in different teams and uh, small teams, huge teams. Now we're a team of six. Like for you, what does good collaboration look like? And I'm I'm not just asking for this for a selfish point of view, but really I know that a lot of conversation designers at the moment are asking this. You know, well, because working with this colleague Ben of mine, what bad collaboration looks like. No, no, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. <laughs> I'm I would sorry. believe you. <laughs> no, 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 no. This is sorry. Go ahead. I, I cut you off there. I apologize. No, no, it's fine. Um, yeah, like you know, because of course designers aren't new but conversational designers are and this is technology so therefore those who understand the the underlying um the technology itself uh understand a lot of what's going on and i think that's the thing that there has to be this kind of synergy where the you know and I, i don't want to oversimplify but i sort of have to uh so you know you covering the tech side really understand what's happening with all of these connections what's happening behind the scenes so to speak but really everything is behind the scenes and then the designers are maybe a bit more focused on uh user experience and perhaps like uh i don't know it's 
Because I was going to say business goals, but of course tech feeds into that as well. We're, we're all doing all, the same. Yeah, exactly. We are all doing the same thing, but from different angles, right? No, and, and I say like, yeah. So for me, good collaboration. I mean, I obviously we're. we're I, mean, I mean, you know this, but I guess if everyone else is. We're very big on design thinking, right? Like making sure that we have collaborative ideation, right? It's very harmful for anyone, I think, to live in a vacuum and think that they're going to come up with all of the answers themselves. Even, you know, even soliciting external feedback, you know, from your team, you know, as inputs to, to ideate and to, to think about. But, you know, I would say one of the things that I'm uh, hopeful to participate on and, and looking to, to emerge in our industry is something akin to uh, in the software community, like domain-driven design. And so domain-driven design was a book actually written by uh, by an individual, but it essentially is a way of, uh, I would say, I would, if I'm going to overly summarize what this book does, it it's meant to get developers to think a little bit deeper about the, uh, about the domain in which they're developing in and how to come up with the right abstractions that make sense kind of for everybody, how to come up with, you know, ubiquitous language in terms of talking about things, whether it's stuff within the domain, whether it's stuff about how you're going to work together, uh, how that can lend itself, obviously, even to best practices and center of excellences and templating. I mean, if we come up with, let's call it the, a pattern that we'll call the hamburger pattern, and we know that the hamburger pattern, the copy is going to kind of flow this way. And, you know, the technical bits are kind of be that way. You and I can get a use case and just say, hey, man, let's do the hamburger pattern for this one. And we just know this is exactly what we're going to need on input. This is what we're going to get on the output. And 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 so and, and so and behold. And, you know, in many ways, I think that's <clears throat> somewhat lacking what's lacking, too, in things like like analytics. Right. Because there's no common. This is exactly how we should be abstracting the bits of a conversation, like from a dialogue management perspective. And so that's why you don't see any of those abstractions in analytics tools. Right, or even in bottom platforms, things like goals, sequences, subsequences, and steps. Right, they all have them in some way, shape, or another because obviously we're building bots that do these things today. So there's a way of stringing those components together, but you're you're making those abstractions. Whereas I think what what I did is I took a domain-driven design approach to conversations way back when and came up with the oh, this is what's important. This is how these things work, and this is how you know we're going to collectively draw these boundaries here of these systems so that we can properly understand and and uh, uh, and draw the right layers of how these abstractions are going to communicate with each other effectively. And so I know I'm kind of rambling on now, but so when I talk about good collaboration, I think it's very important to not only collaboratively ideate with obviously a, a lar as large a group as possible, but it is, it is important to form consensus. It is important to, to stay aligned. And that doesn't mean that everybody has to agree with everything. It doesn't mean that everyone has to agree that like, yes, this is the best approach, but everyone has to agree with, why we're doing it, right? With why it should be this way with, um, you know, at least the path forward. And that's the, the best thing too also is, is, you know, setting yourself up with, with ways of experimenting. Also trying, trying to remove uh, personal opinion, right? So if, if, if ever there is an issue, well, you know, because again, we're talking about how we interact with businesses. We're all different personas with different, uh, you know, I might want my interactions to be very quick and concise because I want to get off the phone as quickly as possible, but someone else might want, you know, to have a little bit more of a social element and all these things. And so there is, there's, there's no right way. I guess that's, that's the right, the, the one thing to keep in mind is that no one's way is right. So everyone yeah. has to 
kind of go into it that way. And everyone has to be very objective, right? Soliciting external feedback. But ultimately, everyone's opinion does really matter, right? Because that's that's obviously how we deliver better experiences in the end. And if we can align ourselves on all of these things and you know, you know kind of the challenges that are faced in the technical domain and what I might run into with this, that, or the other, and I'll understand the challenges that you're going to run into with let's say processes needing to be a certain way or how we need to approach a certain thing, making sure that we obviously keep that, uh, stay in sync on that, but not only just in, in, let's call it a design phase, but like throughout the entire execution cycle as well is to me uh, what good collaboration works like. And so it's not just, you know, design, throw the ball over the wall and then we implement it's, we're working together on design and then we're working together on execution. And I think that's what good collaboration looks like. Yeah, perfect. I, I totally agree. I think that's the absolute worst scenario where it's just like one person creates some kind of like template for what it should be and passes it over. And yeah. then it's just, you know, it's talking about like agile gone wrong. Where it's like the agile path to building a car. And we're talking about MVPs and like how people actually feel about it at each of these iterations of MVP. And we're talking about, you know, just designing it one way. Okay, here's a car and then tossing it over the ball to the engineering team. And the first version that gets put out is just a wheel. Right. Mm -hmm. And of course, the customer is like, what the heck is this? Like, what am I going to do with a wheel? Right. And then the next. Sure, they would say heck. Sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They would probably be (laughs) much, much less filtered. Um, you know, and then the next version is like a wheel with an axle again, like completely and essentially like, I think it was broken down in five phases and the whole thing was completely useless until the fifth phase. And I think that's what happens when you get design working in, working in a silo, tossing it over to engineering, who's now responsible for slicing it up into an MVP. Right? And I think versus, you know, then, and then the happy path of that is, you know, you have a, uh, a skateboard. As sort of the MVP of the one, like, well, let's give them, let's give them a means to move faster. Yes. Right. So by keeping the goal in mind and making sure design is working with, you know, uh, implementation or execution along the way to make sure that even the minimum viable product is fulfilling some kind of meaningful goal that's going to benefit people. I mean, in tech, we always like to think that we know what we're doing and that we've got the customer in mind, but you know, the truth is sometimes with some of the challenges that we work on, they can be pretty complex. They can be pretty complicated. They can make us want to bang our heads off the wall. And look, we're humans, right? We're also seeking, you know, reduction of effort. And sometimes, you know, we'll take a shortcut, fully thinking that it's totally fine because man, you don't understand the instrument to actually, do you know what I mean to deliver this thing? But, you know, and that's why, again, making sure design is constantly throughout the loop, like within execution as well, you kind of avoid those pitfalls. Yeah, no, cool. cool. I mean, please don't upset the customers. We need to at least do something useful for them. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> I totally get you. It is like, um, it, it's the two different perspectives. And I guess in any project, there are many more perspectives, but essentially design and tech which is maybe not the best way to summarize even though you are cto but you know code and the the implementations and all this stuff uh need to both feed into it um constantly yeah 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 maybe i'll just give you one more question because i realize we're we're at the hour mark now um so now i just need to make sure that I, all right i'll give you one that's let's you know because you 
you know, as you're speaking about like giving people time back and we're, we're thinking of really how well can we do this? So, and we're talking about connections, a connected bot is a good bot. So if you were to imagine into the future and anything would be available to you in conversational AI to improve uh, the, the connections, what, what do you hope you would have to improve conversational AI exponentially? It's a tough one. Yeah. So what connections would help improve conversational AI? Um, I suppose maybe I'd answer it in a slightly different way uh, okay. that I can think of an answer, which is where I would like to see conversational AI connected to Go for uh, that. improve on the other end. So like having just been at a conference where, you know, I think I would have loved to see some kind of spatially aware uh, assistant, you know, with things like wayfaring, you know, for example, but, but someone like a, a vision based assistant where, I mean, I know you think of like the, you know, the, the old view from Terminator where, you know, he's looking around or I guess Iron Man more, more recent relevant one where, you know, we're using augmented reality to kind of see and discuss things. Right. Yeah. Maybe ask additional questions. Right. Um, so conversing with your conversing with your uh, augmented reality metadata that you already have, you know, in present day. I mean, we have we have good means of displaying stuff, but mm -hmm. taking that data and I mean, if you think like some of the technologies that we have available today, like you know, you you walk past none of this is new. Um, you know, you can hold out your phone and walk past a shop and have ads pop up and stuff like that through augmented reality, but being able to also converse with that because like obviously like these ads that pop up you want to know more you click in now you're in a web page your modalities change like we're really like the experience like you're kind of walking down if you really want that customer to get in your shop right you really want to catch your attend their attention what if just answering a couple quick questions or even having an agent be like hey you know you like our ad like come in here and and you know we'll show you abc or even even add some empathy and you think some of the technology we have to be available today could already be some of the underpins of that like you think like you could take retrieval augmented generate uh, retrieval augmented generation and pair it with augmented reality. So you could have these conversational pop-ups, you know, as you're kind of walking through, you know, a neighborhood with shops or things like that. One of the other things, this was uh, something I dealt with a lot in, in telecom was accessibility, uh, you know, because there's, there's people who are unable to speak that still need to make phone calls. They have these TTY devices and stuff like that. But, you know, uh, like speech recognition, of course, uh, still needs to uh, improve to make this bulletproof, right? But being able to increase the availability uh, and, and quality uh, of those services by having people uh, even potentially pick a brand for themselves. So today, today, uh, you know how that service works. Uh, there's essentially a contact center um, and the customer is essentially typing messages to an agent who is then calling on their behalf and having these conversations, right? And so, you know, uh, there's an opportunity for even people to personalize themselves, right? So imagine calling a contact center, right? And again, you're also dealing with availability, you're dealing with staffing, you're dealing with scheduling, um, you're dealing with times of day, right? So instead of that, imagine, you know, being able to create your own persona branded voice, right? Which you're controlling by typing as opposed to having another person. You, you technically, you know, you technically can't control exactly how that person's even going to represent. So what if you want to sound bubbly or what if you want to sound upset mm -hmm. for whatever the reason is, right? I, I imagine that, you know, 
there's there's a lot of capabilities that we can add today that today are just not available to to people uh, in the in the current user experience provided by the DTY service, right? So, mm-hmm. um, and then of course, last but not least, you know, and this is just because you know I I love video games. I've been playing video games and things like Dungeons and Dragons, you know, uh, the tabletop games since I was young. You know, I've always wanted to have more conversational experiences with the worlds around me in these games, right? And I think like you know. Uh, if we talk about like non-playable characters, for example, in a video game, uh, you know, today you'd walk up to them and you'd initiate a dialogue and you get these preset choices. Say this one, say this next thing, say this other thing, right? And you know, it kind of it 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 does and it doesn't ruin the immersion. I mean, I think that's what we're used to, so it still provides the immersion, but like it's it's very guided immersion. It's like, no, you have to say these things. Some cases I'm like, well, that's not what I would say. I would say this mm-hmm. other you know, thing or, or whatever it may be. But I love the idea of, you know, I'm trying to find out what I'm doing and these people have the information and I actually need to talk to them. I feel like that's like incredibly immersive, like actually mm-hmm. to, to be able to interact with the world around you and converse with it to learn and actually figure out what's going on. So when I, when I think of that, you know, I would love to see, you know, conversationally, I play more of a role uh, there to provide much more immersion in, in those kinds of experiences. Yeah, well, that would be incredible. You know, like all of those things you've described have been incredible. But um, yeah, I can imagine in video games because it is really, you know, you start to see the the kind of the joins that are holding the whole thing together when you start to go up and talk to these people and they're just like, you know, even in some games, they won't even talk to you. They'll just go like, and walk away or something. Yeah. And it's like, well... Okay, that's kind of funny, but it doesn't feel very realistic. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah, and even you know, yeah, it could, it it could be done with large language models, and you oh. know, you could go, you could go so deep. Like in a Lord of the Rings game, they could speak Elvish. Some people have learned to speak Elvish, so the the bots could speak back to you in Elvish, and yeah. that would be outstandingly immersive. I think that would make many people's dreams come true. Uh, you know, to have to to really feel like you're there talking with these people. Um, yeah, cool. Just so let me talk know, forever. Let me know when uh, when the popular NLU framework starts supporting, you know, Elvish and Klingon and all that stuff. And we'll have some pretty immersive, <laughs> immersive uh, video game experiences. It's really, yeah. I'm sure this isn't so far away. It's just like. Yeah, then you would need Google Translate for Klingon. I was going to say, are we going to hit up the big tech firms? Please create the acoustic model for Elvish. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure there's someone there who's a huge Lord of the Rings fan that would be up for it. There you go. You know, Google or wherever. Yeah. Yeah, Justin, we could talk forever. It's great. It's great getting your thoughts on all this stuff. And, you know, like so much of what you're saying is useful. You know, I really wanted to to get your thoughts on data and connections and, you know, these aspects, which I think, you know, as this is essentially, uh, you know, these podcasts are really for conversation designers and many of us are dealing with these things regularly, but perhaps don't understand them as well as we would like. So thanks so much for, for giving the insights and, you know, making those connections. Right on. Well, thank you for having me. Honestly, I'm I'm happy to be here, and I'm glad that uh, you didn't grill me too bad. So, uh, so thank you. Hopefully, hopefully, <laughs> my usual scatterbrainness and and came up with some coherent responses along the way. But uh, no, it was uh, great. It's totally fine, man. I'm just gonna feed all of your voice data 
into some kind of AI trickery and get you to say whatever I want you to say. <laughs> no, promise I'm not going to do that because I'm not going to go and research that. Yeah, that was a, way, a strange way to end it. Anyway, <laughs> thanks, man. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. Cheers. Cheers. <laughs>